uh, been really great to be with you guys this weekend. Um, it was, it's been so much better than uh, last year, <laughs> I think, when I was pretty much just kind of in and out, and really, uh, um, it was just so much better to have a lot of um, very deep and uh, engaging conversations with a lot of you. In a lot of ways, it felt sort of a bit like uh, walking down memory lane as well, because uh, I have some really deep history with a lot of you guys here going back, and some of you hadn't talked to, I think, in a really long time, at least not in any kind of a, a more lengthy conversation. So it's been really great this weekend. Um, it, it's um, just a real sense of just immediate connection with you guys that even though I'm um, really not a part of your church, um, hearing your stories and knowing what you guys are going through and how many similar parallels there are in my life personally as well as in what we're seeing at our church. Um, I think it's just um, an encouraging sense that we're journeying together in this and walking um, uh, side by side each other. So really grateful for this opportunity to be here. also want to say thanks to Dave and the worship team leading us this weekend in worship and really appreciated that as well. Um, that, that video with the kids is awesome. I, it's reminded me, that I think last year there was one too, right? And I love that idea. I think I got to steal that from you guys and have, have our kids ministry create those for, for our retreats as well. Um, as we close out the retreat, I uh, want to speak on the issue of community one last time. Uh, the title that I had originally said was about hospitality, and I'm going to talk about hospitality, but I'm going to go a little broader, and so I've titled the message Going Deep and Wide because I want to capture the idea of hospitality in a little bit of a broader context of what it means to be the church. Um, and so join with me in a, another word of prayer as we turn to his word. God, as we close out this retreat, um, we come under the authority of your word. And so even as we um, sit under this teaching in this moment, we pray that there would be uh, teachable hearts, hearts that are hungry to learn and to grow and to be challenged, and that we would um, not just be stimulated or intrigued by what we hear, but that we would see these as truths that we are called to put into practice, uh, not only in our lives individually, but also collectively as a body of Christ. And so speak to us, we pray, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin with just uh, asking you maybe what seems like a bit of a philosophical question, but um, what is RCC in its um, most elemental level? What is RCC? Is it an idea? In other words, at the core of what RCC is, is it a ministry philosophy or a mission or vision statement? In other words, it really doesn't matter how many people in this revolving door come and go in RCC as long as the vision remains true. RCC is still RCC. Um, and the people are kind of interchangeable. Um, is RCC an event? In other words, it's a couple hours every Sunday. And the truth is, during the pandemic, it really felt like every church was just an event, wasn't it? Especially during the lockdown, when we couldn't even see each other anymore. And we were reduced to watching a service on YouTube or whatever platform that you guys used during that time, sitting comfortably in your pajamas in your living room and worshiping together as a church. When I think about how much energy we put as a staff into the production of a Sunday service, Sometimes it feels like church is primarily just an event. 
I want to ask you, is it a leader? In other words, um, you know, you, it's sad, but for a lot of churches, you could say the pastor is the brand. The pastor is the franchise. And in that sense, the members who show up aren't actually that important. Uh, too many churches, in other words, are driven by a cult of personality where there's a charismatic leader who knows how to draw the crowds. And so the truth is, wherever the pastor goes, so goes the church. And the truth is, there are some churches that remove their pastors, and all they do is pick up everything and start at another place, and they just replicate what they had at the previous place. Because again, the pastor is the brand for that church. Well, if you look at the Bible, I would say that the New Testament doesn't describe the church in these terms at all. When you look in the Bible, what the Bible says is that the church is fundamentally a community. It is a community of people gathered by God to be a family who lives and experiences faith together. In other words, the Bible never talks about church as a building or an event. The term going to church is never used in the New Testament. The people are the church. RCC, in other words, is all of you who come together to share life and be one family. And I think you've seen the reality of this, as, as we've said, of even losing your pastors and now finding yourself in a season where you're pastorless. And yet, nevertheless, you still remain a church, a people of God. I think the pandemic has really tested the credibility of this truth, though. Because for almost a year, we were on this lockdown where we couldn't be physically ex together experiencing church. Uh, there were so many memes, weren't there, about the pandemic and how it was experienced by introverts and extroverts. And here's one that was pretty common. This company says work remotely due to coronavirus. And, uh, you know, what was your reaction to it? Um, this one says, in introverts, please check on your extrovert friends. We're not okay. Um, and this one pokes fun at introverts. When you find out your normal daily lifestyle is called quarantine. <laughs> For some of you, you go, nothing really changed in my life. Um, here's the thing, though, is once things started opening up, I think the truth is both introverts and extroverts actually found it kind of hard to come back into community again. And I don't know if RCC is like that, but I would say even though it's been over a year now that the restrictions have, in essence, been over, we still see the impact of the pandemic on the community life of our church. I don't think we've actually fully recovered yet. Um, and maybe the truth is for you, it has been a struggle. You don't feel like you personally have fully recovered yet. The truth was that there was a certain convenience you grew to like to actually having your Sundays free again, you know, to actually be able to watch service in your pajamas while you're drinking your coffee and eating your toast, and then the rest is family time. And what I have heard from some of my own church members was that um, during the pandemic, their life was so much drama-free, right? Because when you didn't have all these people to deal with, your life suddenly became so much simpler and a lot easier. And I suspect that like my own church, a lot of you have struggled to get back into community and really get fully on board. And so in this final message of this weekend, I want to paint for you a picture of what I believe the New Testament teaches us about what the church as a community 
ought to look like. Um, I'm going to skip this one. And the first point is simply this, that the church of Jesus Christ is a community that has supernatural breadth. Okay? It is wide. Paul gives a very beautiful description of this in his letter to the Ephesians when he says in chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In other words, what Paul is saying is that through the cross, Jesus not only offers us peace with God, but peace with one another. And he does, though, by giving us an entirely new identity that is defined not by our ethnic background or our income level or our hobbies and interests, but by simply the virtue that we are all children of God, saved by the cross. And so in saving us, what he's saying is he has created a new family in which we now refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he means by one new humanity. And what Jesus is saying then is that that is what unites us. And then he says this in chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you Recall. So what he's saying is this, you are not called to create this unity. This unity is created by Christ through the cross. But there is a call to us to maintain the unity created by God. There is a part for us to play. We have a role in this to maintain what God has created. And thinking about this truth, I have to ask myself this hard question. With whom do I feel a stronger connection? just at a very gut level, a middle-aged, college-educated, Asian-American professional who plays pickleball and enjoys cooking and loves photography, which, as you can guess, are all things I enjoy, but who is an avowed atheist, or a truck driver from Wisconsin who dropped out of high school and loves fishing and deer hunting and is a huge Green Bay Packers fan, Ew, you know, <laughs> and loves the Lord. Because what the Bible tells me is that because of Jesus, I have infinitely more in common with that truck driver from Wisconsin than I do with that Asian-American white-collar professional. The guy on the right is my brother in Christ. We are family. Jamie Dunlop writes in The Compelling Community, being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity than your family, your ethnicity, your profession, your nationality, your sexuality, your personality, or any other way this world defines identity. And so the unity you share with every Christian supersedes every other bond. That means that wherever gospel people exist, diversity should as well. Diversity grows naturally from the gospel. That's the gospel truth. But I think we all can acknowledge that this is not an easy truth for us to realize in the church because our old ways of looking at ourselves doesn't change overnight. And it wasn't easy even for the early church. Peter received this vision from God in which this blanket comes down from heaven with all of these unclean animals in it. And God tells Peter, come, eat. And Peter 
is absolutely repelled by this dream. He has shivers of revulsion because all of these were animals that, he were, he, that Jews are forbidden to. Yeah, just think about the term unclean. Your entire life you're told that this stuff is unclean and now suddenly God says, eat it. And the reason why God said that was this was symbolic of saying all of these things that once divided Jews and Gentiles is now being broken down through the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross. And as a result of that vision, Peter not only begins to evangelize to these Gentiles, but he actually begins to go into their homes and begins to break bread with them, eat with them. In other words, he enjoyed for the first time the deliciousness of bacon-wrapped shrimp. (laughs) I mean, this is the kind of stuff he was finally able to eat. And this clearly bothered his fellow Jewish Christians who thought that what Peter was doing was utterly inappropriate. In Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, it says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were not celebrating this. They were rebuking him. And this criticism seemed to have rattled Peter because as a result of it, he actually reversed course and stopped eating with them and going into their homes. And because of this, when Paul met Peter, he confronted him. And this is what he said in Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, which is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's point in rebuking Peter is that this was not a minor issue. This was a gospel issue. Because what Paul was saying was, at the core of the gospel is not only reconciliation with us and God, but reconciliation with us and one another. And by refusing to eat with these Gentile believers and forcing them to conform to Jewish customs, he was saying that you are going to the old ways, the ways of the law, not the ways of grace and the gospel. And you are compromising the very heart of the gospel message. And so under Peter's leadership, even a guy like Barnabas was coerced into doing the same thing. And so Paul argues at the closing of his letter to Galatians, chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. This call to accept and love everyone, regardless of their background, is not a minor issue. But what Paul says is that their behavior was in contradiction to this fundamental truth that we are a new creation no longer defined along ethnic lines or any other lines. And what he was saying was, this is such a huge step backward from the message of the good news of the gospel that we are now once again drawing boundary markers around each other based on our past qualifications. And what 
Paul is saying is Jesus died to create a new creation, a new people for himself that are defined now by simply nothing more than the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, to be a true gospel community, our commitment to one another then has to go beyond simply sitting together for a couple hours on a Sunday afternoon or morning. It means to genuinely break bread with one another and to embrace each other as true friends. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Galatians, writes, we politely sit by those other people in church, but we won't eat with them. We won't really become friends with them. We won't socialize with them, sharing our lives and homes and things with them. We will keep relationships formal and see them at official church meetings only. It takes intentional effort to embrace one another in love as a family, doesn't it? I want to ask you, are you willing to invite someone to your house in order to get to know them better? One of the ways that I think God transforms our community into this kind of community is through the ministry of hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That word hospitality literally means love of the stranger. In Greek, it's xenophilia, love of the stranger. But what's so odd about it is that Paul applies this concept of hospitality to the church itself, meaning that even within the body of Christ, there are some who feel like strangers and don't feel like they're accepted and that they belong. And so we are called to practice hospitality. In other words, the way that you treat the people in your inner circle include those people into that place who don't feel like they belong. Are you willing to invite people into your home so that they might feel like they belong here at RCC? Why not invite them on a Sunday afternoon after service and serve them lunch? And here's the thing that I tell my own church. I feel like a lot of people in my own church don't do this because they feel so insecure about their cooking. Just cater, okay? It's not a big deal. Just cater from a local restaurant and just sit down and break bread together. Or watch a Bears game together after a church. Or, or find ways that you can genuinely bring people into that inner circle. In an essay entitled The Inner Ring, C.S. Lewis wrote about this tendency that we all have to form exclusive circles. And he describes every community like an onion in which you peel back the layers. And you realize that deeper and deeper you go into this thing, there are inner rings and there are inner, inner rings. And then there are the innermost rings in any organization. And he writes in this essay, um, sorry, I forgot the advanced slides. I was getting so excited here. <laughs> um, but you have met the phenomenon of an inner ring. Perhaps you discovered that with the ring, there was a ring yet more inner. You were beginning, in fact, to pierce through the skins of the onion. One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is yet a very bad man do very bad things. You yourself, once you are in, want to make it hard for the next entrant, just as those who are already in made it hard for you. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people who were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence.
I uh, discovered the phenomenon of this inner ring in high school when I joined the uh, high school football team as a freshman. And the only reason I joined is because my best friend at that time was this guy named Jim, who was a good old boy from Texas. And for him, his entire life revolved around football. So I showed up for summer uh, tryouts. And I don't know a thing about football. But the coaches lined up everyone that was at tryouts and made us run from one end of the end zone to the next and back. And before I knew it, I had beaten everyone in this race by like a good 15 yards. Others, I was the fastest kid there. And so I became the starting running back of the team. And what I didn't realize was that most of those guys on that team had actually grown up playing youth football together. And they all knew each other. And um, what I realized is I actually took the spot of one of these kids that assumed he was going to be the starting running back on the team. And he was really bothered by that. Over the course of the season, I think I earned their respect. My stats were good. <laughs> Our team was undefeated. Um, and I thought I made it into the inner ring until one of the last games of the season, I got a knee injury. And I saw how excited the other teammates were that their friend was finally going to get a start in the game as a running back. And it just crushed me. Because I realized as much as I thought I made it to the inner ring, there was still a deeper inner ring that I was not invited to. And I wonder how many of you have felt like that. Have you ever felt excluded, unaccepted? Let me say this. Some of you are very comfortable here at RCC because the truth is you are in that inner ring. It feels like family to you. It feels effortless. But there are also, I'm sure, some of you in this room who feel like you are not in any of those inner rings at all. Who wonder every week when you come here, is this the church for me? Is this the church for us? I don't know. And the ministry of hospitality is calling all of us to expand our inner rings and invite others in who feel left out. The church must, if it is the church of Jesus Christ, represent a supernatural breadth. But another thing that the church of Jesus Christ must also represent is a supernatural depth. A supernatural depth. If you look at Romans chapter 15, it says this. Um, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you together that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you in reconciling us to God Jesus in other words has modeled a love for us that ought to be displayed to one another in other words in a genuine community of faith under Jesus, we learn how to receive one another in love, forgiving each other, and displaying a level of commitment to each other that ought to be different than what the world experiences. I think sometimes I hear this kind of naive sentiment among churchgoers, among Christians, that somehow if we really were the pure church of Jesus Christ, there shouldn't be conflicts. 
and struggles. But that is not how the New Testament talks about this kind of love. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14, it says, Bear with each other and forgive each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. By the, by the fact that we are called to bear with one another assumes conflict, assumes that there are going to be times when it's hard to deal with people and you just don't want to. But the call is that in that setting, we are called to show love and tolerance and patience with each other. It is actually in the context of conflict and struggle in a community that Christianity ought to really shine as unique in this world because it is in that moment that we are able to actually exercise forgiveness and forbearance and kindness to each other. I think for too many Christians, when they reach a moment of disillusionment, what that signals to them is that it's time to leave this church and find another church. I read to you yesterday night a quote by Bonhoeffer from uh, Life Together. I'm going to actually extend that quote a little bit and share with you what he says a little bit earlier about the issue of disillusionment with church. Only the community which enters into the experience of this great disillusionment begins to be what it should be in God's sight. The sooner this moment of disillusionment comes over the individual and the community, the better for both. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than a Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community. Do you hear what Bonhoeffer is saying? He's saying disillusionment is a necessary step of church membership. Because it's only when we've actually truly been disillusioned that we can embrace the church as it actually exists. Because when all of my expectations and demands of what the church must be are finally exposed, then I can actually begin to love the church as it truly is. In other words, love is not about demanding that others meet our idealized expectations of them. That is not love but accepting and embracing them as they actually are. And so when you become a prophet of the church, just judging and railing against everything that is wrong with those other people, you are not displaying love. You are not living out the command to embrace the church as God himself embraces it. I think what's so great about disillusionment with the church is that it can actually open the door to a deeper kind of spiritual friendship in which we can be real and honest with each other. And we see glimpses of that throughout Scripture. Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Proverbs 27.5-6, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I think the ultimate goal of a church is to recover what was lost in the Garden of Eden. In other words, to be naked and unashamed. 
the sense that I can reveal my junk and not be judged for it, but be embraced and loved and accepted. True community, in other words, is a place where we can confess our sins and know that there are people who are with us in that struggle, praying with us, walking with us through all of that. And true community is where we can actually call each other out in love, truth in love, and are able to sharpen one another like iron sharpening iron. And the truth is, when we do that, sometimes it cuts like a knife. But as it says here, there is a love that comes in rebuke that is more faithful and restorative than all the kisses of an enemy who are too cowardly to tell you what you need to hear. That is not love. That is not love. Love is not talking about you behind your back, but unwilling to have the courage to say something that you need to hear. Love is being caring enough about a person to say the things that nobody else will say to them, but you do so in a spirit of acceptance and embrace. Dave Getz writes, Friends provide accountability as an insight that comes with being fully known over time. While we were shopping for a new car, a friend hit me with a cliche, Dave, you know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I was in my early 30s, and he had wearied of, he had wearied of my thinly disguised envy. I didn't reply. I couldn't. I hated what he had just said. The comment dug its heels into my soul. Though he had never brought it up again, Years later, I still think about what he said that afternoon. I can't explain fully why I can accept a stinging rebuke from a friend or why it still rolls around in my head today, years later. As I thought about Getz's confession about what his friend said to him, which, I mean, it's pretty hurtful, right? You know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. I mean, how many people could you say that to, actually, and not lose a friendship? Um, but when I really thought about it, I thought, there are people in my life that have played that role in my life who know me well enough and I trust well enough who have really said some things that were very painful for me to hear. And yet years after they told me these things, they continue to have an impact on me toward my sanctification, toward becoming like Jesus. And I thank God so much that they were willing to take the risk in our friendship, to say those things because they have helped me tremendously to expose a blind spot that I just couldn't see in myself. And I wonder, do you have people like that in your life who can go beyond these superficial acquaintanceships and actually say the things that nobody else would say to you out of love, not condemnation or judgment because that is a true community in Jesus Christ. Let me just close with this and we'll be done. Back in 2020, the news, this news event got lost in the midst of everything that was going on in the pandemic. I don't know if you know who this guy is, but his name is Darren Patrick. He was in two, 2002 planted uh, Journey Church, which rose to prominence in the St. Louis area and actually quickly became a mega church. And he was a rising star in reformed circles. Gospel Coalition, Acts 29 Network. And then in 2016, he was basically fired as a pastor of that church for he was found guilty of misconduct, having inappropriate meetings with two women, as well as being accused of abuse of power. 
And he underwent this restorative process and received counseling, and he actually ended up returning to ministry a year later, joining staff of Seacoast Church in the South Carolina area. And it looked like everything was turning around for Patrick. And then one day he was target shooting when, um, tragically, he ended up taking his own life. And in a podcast interview that was in an eerie way released the week after his death, his suicide, uh, he ended up sharing very vulnerably and openly about how unhealthy it was for him and a group of pastors, young pastors who he was traveling with, who rose way too quickly to celebrity status. They were given book deals and speaking engagements, and they just gained so much fame too quickly and too much money with very little actual spirituality or spiritual maturity. And what he confessed was that his entire focus of ministry and being a pastor was managing and growing his public image. I hate this term that we use even in ministry, but I pushed on this all the time to, quote, build your platform, you know? People bug me all the time about that. I, I am not on social media. I almost never post. And people say, you need to build your platform. How are you going to keep ICC to what it needs to be if you don't build your platform? I, go, I don't care about that stuff. But this is what he said in that podcast interview, which was so chilling, was um, he said he basically cut himself off of any real friendships that he had because of the fame that he gained. And he said this, I stopped pursuing friendships. Another way to say that, I stopped being known. And that was the beginning of the end. In other words, in a season of his life when he needed it more than ever, Patrick chose to cut himself off from any real sense of community. And the truth is, as a pastor, he was surrounded by people and it gave him the illusion of community but the truth is there's a difference between being part of a community and actually really being in the life of that community. As Patrick said it best himself, I stopped being known. And I think that's the challenge that every one of us face in life, to be part of a community within which you are genuinely known. Because I think there is undeniably an appeal to a life of hiddenness, isn't there? Life lived in the shallows, where you're part of a community, but you're not really in it. And you're part of a community, but you're really not known by anybody. Because there's a convenience and a protection to that hiddenness. But there's also something very deadly about that hiddenness. I have a group of these college friends, as I shared this weekend, that we've known each other for decades. This is a picture of them. One of them is actually my biological brother, Dave. For over two decades, we've been meeting together, once a year at least, sometimes more. And we discuss books together, talk about hot ministry topics together. We pray for each other. We cry together. We have stood at each other's weddings. We have celebrated the births of our children. We have mourned the passing of our parents. And during my first year of ministry as a missionary in Kenya, when I was so homesick, I set out a distress call to these guys and said, I don't know if I'm going to make it as a missionary out here. It is so lonely. 
And they literally dropped everything that they were doing. And they came out to Kenya to encourage me and support me in my work. That's the kind of friends I have. And when one of our friends, Seth, started his new work as a missionary in Hong Kong, we dropped everything. <laughs> you see, we look a little older now. Um, we dropped everything and went to him to encourage him as well. This year, our meeting is in Connecticut because one of our brothers, Peter, has been pastoring a church out there, and we want to encourage him out there as well. I want to know, um, do you have relationships like this in your life where you can honestly say, I am known by somebody? I have a group of people that could call me out when I need to hear the hard stuff in my life. When I am in crisis, these are the first people I think to call when I need support. My hope is that here at RCC, you would discover the depth and the breadth of relationships like this. Let's pray. As we close out the retreat and get ready to head back to our homes, um, I know Monday morning just returns us all to the craziness of life as usual, right? Um, but I hope some of the things that have been uh, taught to you this weekend would linger with you and that you would wrestle with some of these things. Um, Maybe your experience here at RCC has been a little bittersweet. There's stuff that you love about this church, but there are other aspects of it that you really struggle with. And here's the thing. You could hear a message like this, and it'd be so easy to pick up stones and want it to throw it at somebody. I'm asking you not to do that. What I'm asking is for you to first turn the... Um, lens on yourself and say, where is the brokenness in me that God needs to deal with to make me um, one who can actually build the community of RCC rather than tearing it down? You can blame the elders, the leaders, the, the deacons, whoever, I don't know, and say, why aren't they doing more? But that would be the worst way to apply a message like this. I think instead, what we need to do as we wrap up this weekend is to say, what is God asking of me? Maybe if you are the one that feels like the outsider, it's okay. You can even invite somebody at the church to get to know them better. You don't have to wait for someone to make the first move. Maybe because of your own sense of feeling excluded or feeling lonely, you could say, do you guys want to actually come over to my house? And I'll, you know, order some sushi. I'll order a sushi platter. And we'll just talk and get to know one another better. Um, my hope is that what you would experience here at RCC would be a supernatural breadth in which the one thing you hold in common is that you are all children of God and no one feels excluded. And then you would experience a supernatural depth in which there are just a handful of people with whom you can go deeper than that and say, would you hold me accountable? Would you tell me the things I need to hear in my life? And if there's anything that you want to say, I will receive it in love because I know you care about me. I believe that. 
Let me just uh, close this in prayer, and then we'll have a time of response and worship. God, this is my prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ. As we uh, continue to strive to live out our faith, particularly in the way that it is expressed through our relationships, and particularly as those relationships are represented in this church. I pray that RCC would be a church that would stand out as a beacon of light in such a dark world to show what true Christian community ought to look like. I pray that they might experience within their midst this supernatural breadth that everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or geography, would be embraced here in this congregation. I pray that it would also be represented by a forbearance and a patience and a love for one another, an ability to support each other in moments of crisis and need, that ultimately what would be on display through this church is the love of Jesus through the love that that is shared with one another. And so make these things true of RCC in the days ahead to grow more and more perfectly into that community as we pray these things in Christ's name.